Hello, listeners. Dave and I are excited to announce that Sci-Fi Fidelity is doing another prize giveaway from Titan Books to help promote the podcast. That's right, Mike. Three lucky listeners can win their very own copy of Altered Carbon, the art and making of the series. The official coffee table book companion to the Netflix series currently airing its second season as of February 27th. Yep, it's a richly detailed and beautifully presented art book that takes readers from the glittering area to the gritty streets of Bay City. Featuring episode stills, development art, final designs, VFX builds, set photos, unseen storyboards, and concept art from the first two seasons, plus interviews with the cast and crew. Altered Carbon, the art and making of the series, will bring readers into this visually stunning futuristic world where technology has transformed mortality. Now, Mike, the book will be available to the world on March 31st, but why would you wait when you can be one of the very first to get your copy? Entering is simple. Just follow Sci-Fi Fidelity on Twitter or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Sci-Fi Fidelity. Then respond to the giveaway thread, which is pinned to the top in both instances, and tell us who your favorite character is from Altered Carbon and why. And you can also win a bonus entry for writing a review for Sci-Fi Fidelity on Apple Podcasts. Just tell us what name your review is under when you respond to the Facebook or Twitter thread. Social media entries only need to be on one platform. No need to do both. The giveaway ends on March 26th, and winners will be selected at random. If you're lucky enough to be one of those winners, you must respond to prize shipping address requests within 48 hours before new winners are chosen. Sorry, international listeners. We know we have quite a few, but this giveaway is open to U.S. residents only. So follow us and comment, and remember to subscribe to Sci-Fi Fidelity wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Now for this week's installment. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, episode 94, Cosmos Interview. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's Mike and Dave with you here once again with a different flavor of podcast for you. It's an interview edition, but it's not our typical showrunner or actor type of interview. We do have an executive producer, but uh, this isn't science fiction, except in the sense of some of the topics they talk about on Cosmos Possible Worlds. You know, I mean, is it fair to say Neil deGrasse Tyson is one of the more iconic nonfiction science sci-fi <laughs> personalities out there? I mean, how do you not know who he is? Everybody knows. Well, he's the perfect choice as a host for Cosmos Possible Worlds, because just like Carl Sagan did back in the very first TV show Cosmos in 1980, he is the voice of popular science. He's taking science and making it accessible to the average person and getting people excited about it. And I think that's what he's so good at. He's very charismatic. He's very knowledgeable. He's an astrophysicist by trade. But Cosmos Possible Worlds explores all kinds of areas of science, not just space. So that's actually what they're here to talk about because Andrewian is very enthusiastic about, you know, environmental issues and things like of that nature. And she just wrote a book to follow up Carl Sagan's book, Cosmos. The sequel just came out a couple weeks ago, 
actually it was the same day that, that I interviewed her, her book came out, which you'll hear in the interview here. And, you know, she talked about that a little bit, but the title Cosmos Possible Worlds kind of tells you what kinds of topics they're going to be talking about. It can be possible futures. It could be possible worlds that are minuscule as well as vast exoplanets far away, future earth. So I feel like it does have a science fiction element to it in that respect because they're speculating on what might be. Absolutely. And it's one of those things. I think we talked about this when we were covering Nat Geo Mars is that from a science fiction standpoint, what was so great there and, and the same with the expanse is that the world we're exposed to, we actually could get there. Yeah, exactly. And so obviously they, they borrow a lot of the stuff from Carl Sagan's original show, like the ship of imagination to explore the future, the past, historical things, archaeological things, anthropological things, all kinds of different areas. And so we spoke with Andrewian um, about the show and some of its origins. And we also talked to host Neil deGrasse Tyson about some of the mechanics of the show and, and some of the behind the scenes stuff, which was fun to talk to him about. So let's go ahead and turn it over to Andrewian and Neil deGrasse Tyson to talk about Cosmos Possible Worlds, which is on Nat Geo as of March 9th. Hi, Anne. Hey, Michael. How are you? Good to talk to you again. Uh, we spoke a couple years ago at New York Comic Con, but now we get a second chance to talk about Cosmos, so I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm delighted. It's great to be talking with you again. And uh, before we dive into it, I, I want to mention that I did, just purely by coincidence, tune into Troop Zero on Amazon, which actually has the golden record as its central conflict. Yes, I heard about that. <laughs> did you hear anything about that, or what was your reaction? I it was happening, but I didn't. I don't know anything more about it than that. <laughs> That's pretty cool, though. Was it good? Yeah, it was good. It was good. It was fictionalized, of course, but um, I think it's also an interesting coincidence that we're talking to you on the day your book comes out as an accompaniment to Cosmos Possible Worlds. Does it act as a follow-up to your late husband's Cosmos, a personal journey, specifically in terms of its message and tone and, and such? Boy, I sure hope so. That's <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going for. You know, I um, obviously, uh, as I write in the book, I know how big those shoes are. Uh, probably better than anyone on Earth. I just know how big they are. And so it, I was, you know, as I was writing it, I was worried that uh, it wouldn't be worthy of Cosmos, which attracted so many people to do, study, read, uh, you know, actually do science, take a, a career pathway in science. I meet people all the time who were first attracted to science by Cosmos. And I think it's true of both books, I hope, and, and all three seasons of the show. That, you know, I am not a scientist. I'm just a hunter-gatherer of stories who was privileged to have the most astonishing 24-hour tutorial um, probably one of the greatest teachers in history. So I have vast pockets of ignorance, you know, really big ones. But I was inspired by my work with Carl and my life with Carl to want to present the power, the awesome power of the scientific method for feeling, knowing, seeing, understanding the romance of life in the cosmos and the exquisite complexity of life itself. 
and I feel like I'm just keeping the flame. And it's a flame that I believe in now more than ever. I feel it's more urgent than ever. I don't have to tell you about the great shadow on our future. And so it was my hope that this cosmos, by telling the stories of some of our ancestors who really had their back to the wall and who stood up when it counted for science, for reality, for the future, but also to depict a glorious future that we can still have if we start taking science to heart. And I hope Cosmos is in some sense, although it's not specifically, you know, a kind of a diatribe to people, but instead an inspiration to awaken and to start demanding the kind of leadership that we need. And that's what's so great about Cosmos is that you mentioned the shadow on our world, but it is such an optimistic view of things. And the title itself, Possible Worlds, has that optimism built in. It can mean so many different things. So how how are some of the ways that the show is going to interpret what worlds are possible, both out there and here at home? Well, first of all, absolutely right, Michael. I just, I'm really impressed because that's exactly what I intended with the title. You know, not just the possible worlds of the exoplanets that we can visit, the worlds of other suns, not just those, but the worlds within us, the architecture and physics of dreaming, the immensely sophisticated use of symbolic language that another species on Earth, non-human, utilizes in order to arrive at democratic consensus. That world, the lost worlds of this planet, we bring to life, you know, a lost city, Mohenjo-Daro, in what is now Pakistan, but many thousands of years ago, before the Greeks were doing all the cool things that they did, there was a great city of a million people in which, uh, you know, we understand virtually nothing about them. And yet, in Cosmos, we let it live again on one of its best days with a large population and buildings for as far as the eye can see and Neil walks those streets. We go back to a, an, another lost world, uh, the proto-city, one of the first cities in the transition from hunter-gathering to settled agriculture. To, it's called Shatel Hoyak and it's on the Anatolian plain in what is now Turkey. We, we we create the entire city and we go into one of the apartments. What's so amazing about Chateau Hoyat is that it was a city before the street or the door was invented. And so you would walk along the rooftops of this, what looked like an apartment complex, to uh, climb down through the roof into an apartment. The oldest map that we have yet to discover was painted on one of the walls there. The apartments were beautifully decorated. We want to take you through there and see all of the ways that there had been to be human. What's amazing about Chateau Hoyek is that it was before there were palaces so that one family lived on one level of splendor while others were impoverished. We've only been living with the inequities and the violence on such a grand scale 
since the invention of settled agriculture. But for most of our history, being human meant something entirely different. It meant cooperation. You didn't want possessions because they would slow you down. You were wanderers. Well, I think we're still wanderers. And I think that in our history, which has been so hard for so many people, we have been in much worse situations than we can imagine. And yet you're here and I'm here because they endured. Society is civilization's like a template. You know, certain tendencies are encouraged and other tendencies are discouraged. But the, but the range of human capability is so much wider. And so we're telling these stories of these hero searchers who stood up in the face of certain death for reality. And we're telling these stories not to hit you over the head with them because they all have to work dramatically and emotionally and visually on their own. But as existence theorems, as examples, of what it is to be human. And those strengths that are called for in us right now, we have manifested in so many different times. And we can do it again. Yeah, if they can do it, we can do it. Right. Now, what's great is the uh, space-time odyssey that served as season two, if you will, in 2014, was a great in- reintroduction to the ship of the imagination, among other things. But what lessons did you learn from that first run in season two that has carried through into possible worlds? Well, principally that the rate of development in our ability to simulate reality VFS (laughs) has just come a long way. And so we have an even bigger palette of ways to tell our story than ever before and to simulate. I mean, there's shots in the new season that, I've imagined in, you know, in my head for decades, but to actually see the sun become a red giant and strip away the exquisite atmosphere of Jupiter, to see the kind of dowdy stone part within, so dramatic, to see Jupiter itself, firstborn child of the sun, to be plowing out its lane in the accreting solar system, all of that. Um, I, I don't know about the lessons I learned. I very much tremendous regard and affection for the people I work with. And Brandon Braga is a fantastic collaborator. We sat in a room for a year together writing these scripts. And, um, you know, I don't see it as, as, I mean, just learning that there are more, there are many more legs to walk on, but I can't say that I feel about season two like, you know, I wish I hadn't done this or I wish somebody else hadn't done that. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, both experiences have just been peak experiences. And I think that's because, you know, we were able to attract extraordinary talent from the movie business, people, you know, who could have pulled down a lot more money doing something else. (laughs) But... There were so many people who were like so happy that we weren't using our talents at simulating reality just to blow up cars. You know? <laughs> it was like, it was so exciting. People wanted to work on something that was potentially meaningful and would make the view, would empower the viewer. 
would make the viewer more powerful after they saw it because they would know so much more about the beauty of life and the universe. You know, we can make up stories, but we are pathetic when it comes to nature and the variety of life, the beauty of the cosmos, the joy of coming to know it at the same moment that we are totally messing up our planet. We are also attaining capabilities of perception, getting to know a little bit about the universe, getting to know a little bit about how it's put together. But even the little we're getting to know is so much more than our ancestors could know. For them, it was a curtain of darkness with little tiny holes in it to let in some light, the stars. (laughs) That's what it was. For us, it's our home. Every part of us was formed in the depths of fiery, distant stars. We are of the cosmos. And the sin is that we don't teach science as a soaring spiritual experience. Instead, we make it threatening. We compartmentalize it. We don't teach the sciences as an integrated way of seeing virtually everything. Instead, we make it, you know, 40 minutes of fear and boredom a couple of times a week. And yet, we're a society completely dependent on science and high technology. And so, if most of us are excluded, well, it's no wonder that we make such bad decisions as citizens. Because we've been effectively locked out. And the dream of cosmos... And Carl, you know, the dream of Carl's life really was to tear down those walls that keep all of us from this birthright. Well, Anne, I want to really thank you for uh, talking to me today about it. Uh, March 5th, right, is the premiere date? March 9th. March, March 9th, 9th, sorry. March 9th and uh, in 172 countries around this planet. It was really a pleasure talking with you, Michael. I hope we get to talk a third time. All right. Yes, indeed. Thanks so much. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
Welcome, Neil. I'm, I'm glad we get to speak again. I spoke to you back in New York a couple years ago, but of course, there's been a delay. Oh, we did. Okay. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. Now, uh, just to clarify for both our readers and our listeners, uh, we've got Cosmos, A Personal Journey. We're considering that season one. Then you've got A Space-Time Odyssey in 2014. And so that's where we get season three here with Cosmos Possible Worlds, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. So I love this title because it can mean so many different things. How are some of the different ways we can interpret what worlds are possible, both foreign and domestic, I guess you could say? (laughs) I, too, love the title. I think it's, in fact, I even well up every now and then when I just re-recite the title because it is so filled with hope. And the concept of possible worlds need not be interpreted only literally, and yes, in the 13 episodes, you will be you will encounter exoplanets, right? And there's, we're rising through, what's the count, 4,000 now, planets orbiting other stars. Those are possible worlds. You learn about what has happened to those worlds, good or bad, relative to human life. But there are also worlds within our own solar system, not only other planets, but moons of planets. And there are worlds within our own world, right? There's the quantum realm, that's kind of like a world. This is the metaphorical world. There's, there's the mycelium, something I learned about just doing this show, because professionally I'm an astrophysicist, and this comes from the world of biology and botany, this interconnected electrochemical pathways underfoot where plants are communicating with other plants. And I think this became a, a seed, a taproot for James Cameron in Avatar, where the planet Pandora had plant life intercommunicating with other plant life. And so so he took it to a science fiction realm, but that's also a world. And there's a whole episode where we think about bees and what what they are doing. We all know they pollinate flowers, but what else do they do? How are they communicating with each other? They live in their own world. So a, a cosmic perspective, which is one of the DNA strands of cosmos, is to learn enough about what else is going on out there to know how you fit into that big picture. And that then gives you an honest sense of who you are, how you belong, and what you should do about the civilization that we have created so that the next generation can be proud of what we have done with the civilization they have inherited rather than be embarrassed by it. And how about future versions of Earth, the possibilities are both hopeful and also somewhat dire. Do you explore both of those? Oh, uh, most certainly. So Earth, a possible world, is, is, you know, of the pathways that lay before us, are we wise enough to know which ones to choose? And where's that wisdom coming from? Are you just sitting in a chair and thinking it up according to your own belief system? Or do you have objective methods and tools to make this decision? And that's been the hallmark of science and technology, and its handmade technology, over the history of those two human exploits. We can use science to get a sense of what the consequences are on the future of our current behavior, or the consequences on the future of our absence of behavior, right? There's what can happen through your action, and there's what can happen through your inaction. And using tools hard-earned over the centuries to decode nature, Cosmos offers insights into how we can come together 
and choose the path that best serves not only our own interests, but the ecosphere as well, the biosphere that has sustained us ever since we've been human. Now, I have to say, I watched uh, the 1980 version of Cosmos when I was a kid, and it was such a great introduction to this ship of the imagination. But I think you guys have done a great reinterpretation of that. What changes did you guys make to this very Sagan-esque concept to lend it a more modern sensibility? Well, the ship has got a more badass design. <laughs> if I say so myself, <laughs> I want one of those parked outside. Um, so uh, the ship is highly innovative in what it can do moving through space and through time. There are portals below the deck and above. All the portal, the portal below gives access to the past. The portal above gives access to the future. And the present travel is through the main deck's screen. But on that ship, there are no controls. I'm not wearing chevrons on my sleeve. There is no membership to an academy. And felt very strongly that the moment I start separating myself from you with these accoutrements of captainry, then no longer are you standing next to me. I'm here and you're over there. Keep your place. I'm captain and you're not. Well, that's not the message we wanted to convey. So the ship of the imagination is something that I'm on, but you're on it with me. And it responds to all of my thoughts. So as I'm speaking, wherever I want to go, that will appear. As I'm describing a scene, that's what shows up. And I can just walk out of the bridge into any scene that I have just thought up in the service of the storytelling. And so uh, in that sense, it's, it's quite a powerful and potent vessel. Now, interestingly, because that's, of course, a lot of that in front of a green screen, but the show often goes on location all around the world. What are some of the essential places that Cosmos felt it had to visit in person in order to meet its mission? And which locations did you enjoy in particular? Yeah, I, location shooting is always fun. You know, it's not as good being away from home, but it's just <laughs> fun being in a place. Um, so uh, we went to uh, the Netherlands. We went to Spain. We went to uh, Italy. Went to Italy. We went to... Now, there's some places where you cost it out and you say, okay, no, we can't really afford to ship everybody there, so we have to green screen this. And so there are fewer green screen, but I think that that fraction is low enough so that it doesn't concern you that it's that because the rest is real. And so the green screens come across as being highly authentic because they're mixed in with the rest of the location shoots that are. One of my favorite trips was to the world's largest telescope. And this is in China. We went well before the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... So, yes, yeah, so we're all clean, I think. But the world's largest telescope is a mile in circumference. And we used it to not only show the heights to which technology has reached and that this telescope would be ideal in a search for intelligence in the universe. We used it as a launching point to tell other parts of a story about creatures on Earth that communicate. It's an alien intelligence story that doesn't have to leave Earth to be told. So that was an on-location shoot. We didn't want to just send cameramen there to get the footage and then sort of Photoshop me in. I mean, I'm there on the gantries, 
I'm walking the perimeter. We're underneath the dish. So that was fun. My biggest disappointment, you know, I live in Manhattan. I live just blocks away from the Brooklyn Bridge. We green screened the damn Brooklyn Bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, I was angry. I said, I live, this is my place. This is my people. This is my bridge. And so they did set camera people to get video green screen. And they set up this railing that I leaned on. And the actual bridge railing became what I was leaning on. And people are walking by me and bicycles and cars are driving below. And the lighting is reproduced, and you would just have no idea. <laughs> well, are there aspects either in season two or season three where you envisioned what you were doing or were told what you were doing, manipulating something perhaps on the ship in front of green screen, and then it turned out so much grander in the final edit where you oh, yeah, were surprised? That happened, that, that happened <laughs> a thousand times, yeah. <laughs> and the visual effects supervisor said, okay, right in front of you, there's a spinning globe. Um, gesture to it, and over here is Europe, and there's Africa. Go. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> so, and also from the ship, there's a huge wall that's a green screen outside the ship. And the visual effects supervisor would take his laser and point to a spot and say, a star just blew up right there. React. And so I can do that because I know what stars look like when they blew up. So I was cool with that. A little harder for me, a little bit more of a stretch, is when I was asked to visualize like a, a worm or some, some, I needed visual references for that because I'm not, you know, the animal kingdom guy, but otherwise, yeah, that, that happened all the time. Now this show has some great writers, including executive producers, Andrew and, and Brandon Braga, but as one of the biggest names in popular science yourself, surely you're more than just a pretty face with a soothing authoritative voice. <laughs> <laughs> what is your involvement in the back end of the show? Yeah. So um, I have, I carry three titles So I'm narrator, host, and executive science editor. So I'm the last gate before the script goes to video, as spoken by my mouth. So while there are branches of science in the script that I don't have particular expertise in, but we have committees of scientists who did. And so every script was vetted for its accuracy. And then the stories are folded on top of it, and then I pass judgment. And I would say, well, this story is scientifically accurate, but it's missing a larger point that it could have. And so Anne would go back and rework it if necessary, or if she can preserve the line and just change a few other things. And then we have to double check that to see if the changes would still work. So I'm there as sort of the last gatekeeper between the science that's in the script and the science that actually comes out of my mouth. But the storytelling, that's all Anne, uh, Anne and others, but basically Anne is the secret sauce that has appeared in all three cosmoses as co-author, co-writer in 1980, 2014, and 2020. I'll also add, not that you specifically ask this, but it may be of interest to you. You know, I've written 14 books, yeah. but I'm, I'm not a, a writer of record in this series. Now, here's the difference. Yeah, I can write sentences, sure, and I can teach and talk. I can do all that. But I've never really written to have what I write become an entire scene that gets filmed, right? So people who write for movies and write for TV, they're not just writing words. They're writing scenes. And so that's where Brandon Braga and Anne, who has a, a brilliant visual understanding of 
the relationship between words and imagery. Uh, and, and Brandon Braga, who wrote and directed for Star Trek, and st- he even has a Hugo Award, which is the highest award you get for science fiction. So these are folks who can write words that become stories on a screen. And that's that difference. And so what I bring to it is my comfort level communicating science to a public. And the hope is that when you hear me, you feel really comfortable. It's like we're in the living room together. And there's a fireplace burning in the heart. And we're just talking about the universe. And it's your comfort level that I'm after in my delivery, in my tone, in my timbre, in my manner. Yeah, I find that very reassuring when I see those three names show up on the screen during the credits, I have to say. (laughs) So thanks very much for talking to me today, Neil. I appreciate it a lot. Excellent. Thanks for having me. All right, so I don't know if you could tell there, guys, but these two are just so well-spoken and so good at selling not only the show, but the whole concept of science and an interest in science and the importance of science. That was just a perfect interview in that sense. These guys really know how to give an interview, for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, and you mentioned his charisma, and, and I think the thing that he understands, and you know, it may just be natural for him. Yes, he's an astrophysicist, but he understands that his audience is not made up of other astrophysicists. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and yet he's able to impart this technical knowledge in a way that we can all understand. Right. And just being able to do that in front of the green screen and and, yeah. and go to all these different places. I mean, he, he's not an actor, but he should give himself a lot of credit in that respect because he makes it believable and not cheesy and a lot of other things like that. And I just have to say, like, it, it sounds very natural when they're saying it, but I was reading a quote from Anne Druyan to my stepdaughter earlier just to say, listen to how Anne speaks. She said in this interview, you could actually in the show, see the sun become a red giant and strip away the exquisite atmosphere of Jupiter to see the kind of dowdy stone part within. It's so dramatic to see Jupiter itself, firstborn child of the sun, plowing out its lane in the accreting solar system. And that's a direct quote. (laughs) It's like she talks the same way she writes. And I just thought, wow, these guys uh, really have an enthusiasm for the subject. I hate her now. (laughs) I know it's just like sickening, (laughs) but I'm so honored to have spoken to Andrewian and Neil deGrasse Tyson, really giants in their field. And I think going to be historical figures in their own right someday. So I I just feel like being able to talk to them was just a high point in the podcast. So hope you guys enjoyed that as well. But next week we're going to be getting into a discussion topic, Dave, what do we got that's coming to us from one of our listeners, Maureen. Yeah, we are going to talk about sci-fi television shows that had, I think, what we all have come to label Groundhog Day episodes or time loops. Exactly. Repeating days, repeating periods of time where they have to break out of the loop somehow. And there's plenty of examples, some done well, some done not so well. We're going to pick some of our favorites and the listeners will get involved So definitely be looking for that on the Facebook group so that you can participate and we'll read and discuss your answers, your contributions to that topic. It's at facebook.com slash groups slash sci-fi fidelity. So we look forward to hearing from you guys. 
But that's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. In the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or in an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. In the meantime, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.